If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Hello and welcome. I am your host, Randy Andrews, and today I've got Joe Patrick from the Two-Headed Nerd comic podcast on my show with me today. We will be discussing Superman from 1978, how it has changed through the years, the effect in comics, as well as the wonderful scoring by John Williams, today on Soundtrack Alley. Hello, Joe. It's great to have you finally on my show. Randy, it is great to be here. So today we're talking about Superman. And from past experiences, I have learned that this is one of your favorite movies of all time. Oh, yeah. Superman uh, Superman is probably my favorite movie, period. Awesome. Like, my number one. That's fantastic. So, um, when when you first saw Superman, what kind of feelings did you have toward it? Oh gosh, you know, I, I would have been so little. Um, so, Superman the movie came out the year I was born, um, and so I was like the mm-hmm. first time I saw it. You know, I could have been a baby, but um, by the time I was old enough to kind of understand what was happening. Uh, like I've I've been a comic book fan my whole life, so I knew what Superman was, uh, and just to see that character on the screen doing the things that he can do, uh, just kind of like come to life, that would have been the first time anything like that had happened, uh, to, to in my experience. Mm-hmm. Um, even though of course there had been, you know, there was the Batman show in the sixties and stuff, but for me, Superman was the first. And, uh, yeah, gosh, it's just, it's stuck with me ever since. I, I never get tired of it. That's just awesome. Um, you know, when you look at Christopher Reeves on screen and see him be Superman, you know, it's really amazing that, you know, he went, he underwent like a lot of bodybuilding and you know, what was unique about that? was that he was supervised by David Prowse. Oh, funny. Yeah. So Darth Vader? Yeah. He was supervised <laughs> by Darth Vader and to do that. And uh, I found it really unique for that moment. It's like, wow, you're being taught bodybuilding by an icon. <laughs> 
That's hilarious. I did not know that. Yeah. So, um, you know, when we look at Superman and the idea of Superman, uh, how do you think it it changes through the years? Like with the 1978 Superman, it was the first Superman people had seen on the big screen. And do you think that uh, a lot of changes were made according to the film or... Uh, what have you found? You know, um, I have said in the past, and I'm sticking with it, that uh, I think that Superman the movie, for the time, for for where the comics were at the time, uh, Superman the movie is probably one of the most faithful uh, comic book to screen adaptations ever. Mm-hmm. Um like all of the iconic characters are there, the the themes are there. Um, you know, there might be little detail changes here and there, uh, but that's it's like that with every every time they translate something to TV or film. Um, but with Superman, it is just really really close to the style and the feel of the Superman comics of the day. Um like from the costuming on down, like of course Lex Luthor was a little different. Gene Hackman with his uh, full head of hair that, of course, we find out at the end is fake. Um, you know, uh, comic book Lex Luthor was bald and proud, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he wasn't like trying to hide it. Um, I I found it, yeah. I found it interesting with Gene Hackman. He originally didn't want to shave his mustache off for the role. He wanted to oh, sure. keep his mustache on. And so early one sheets of the movie, his face featured a mustache. But then, and, and that was <laughs> that was before Richard Donner had talked with him and met him face to face. And so Donner would cut his mustache off. So Gene Hackman agreed to do it as well. And so then oh my gosh. Uh, he wore a false mustache at some point to where he would peel it off at the last moment just to give him a joke. That's funny. Yeah. I didn't know that either. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's just interesting. These characters, these actors that were in the film, it's like they had they had their little quirks to be able to use for the film itself. What did you think of Marlon? Right. What did you think of Marlon Brando? Uh, you know, at the time, Marlon Brando was probably the most famous actor in that movie. Um, you know, of course, Gene Hackman and and um, Christopher Reeve and these guys, they're like legendary figures now. But in 1978, Marlon Brando was like a huge star. Uh, and it was only uh, a few years after, a handful of years after The Godfather. Uh, and in fact, one of the f- funniest trivia uh, things about Superman is that the guy that wrote the Superman screenplay is the guy that wrote the Godfather. Oh, really? Mario Puzo, uh, he wrote the novel, the Godfather that the, that the Godfather movie was based on. And he also wrote the Superman screenplay. <laughs> so he had that kind of tie there. Yeah. So it was um, perfect for his role. Yeah. I, I think that he was really great. Um, there are a lot of kind of, um, Um, there are a lot of rumors from that time about how like Marlon Brando just kind of showed up one afternoon and, (laughs) and did his, and did his, uh, whole, his whole, um, 
his whole part in like one day and got paid a huge amount of money. <laughs> like it was no big deal. I'm Marlon Brando. Yeah. Get out of my, get out of my way. I'm a gigantic star. Well, um, part of that's true. But yeah, but I think that I think that he did a great job as as Jor-El in the movie. I think that um later on in the film where uh young Clark Kent kind of meets him for the first time mm-hmm. via those holograms. Uh, I just think it's very powerful, and I think he does a great job. Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting that he refused to l- memorize all his lines. And, I mean, that's I, right. That's pretty, you know, normal, I would think, for a lot of actors to be able to just, you know, try to fit it into where they could and not have to remember every single line. And yeah, <laughs> one of the scenes where he was putting the infant... Kal-El into the escape pod he was actually mm-hmm. he was actually reading his lines from the diaper of the baby <laughs> oh my gosh so and, well I mean he pulled it oh, off yeah yeah you wouldn't have <laughs> even known that he was reading his lines so I found it uh, unique that Steven Spielberg was even offered the chance to the direct the film uh, but they, the producers didn't like the salary that he wanted to go with. So, uh, oh boy. Yeah. So they decided to look back on, on his film with Jaws and, uh, Steven Spielberg, he went on to do other projects. And so they had, uh, Richard Donner do the film. So, yeah, I think things ended up okay for Steven Spielberg. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, just a few weeks ago I had, uh, Eric Woods from Cinematic Sound Radio on my show, and we talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark. And, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg had no problem with getting work. (laughs) Yes, exactly, exactly. So, um, with Christopher Reeve, I mean, the last film that he may have even been noted, well, actually, wasn't Somewhere in Time after Superman. I think so. Yeah, I I think so. I thought so too because uh, I hadn't heard of him doing another film before that, and so you know he was pretty much an unknown for the movie. But I think they chose the right man for the job. I agree. I I think that he he really um, embodies. Not only like he's not the he's not the bulkiest guy, you know, mm-hmm. he's not. I mean, yeah, he he worked out and he got fit for the part and everything. But, you know, he's not like a huge superhero looking fella. Um, but I think he embodies the 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 spirit of Superman, you know, the kind of noble. Um, uh, the, just the, the noble figure that stands up for what's right, you know, the sort of guy that when you see him. You know that everything's gonna be okay, um, but yeah, I I think he's wonderful. He's, I mean, all I really knew him for was Superman. I know that he's done that he did other things, but um, every time I ever saw him in something different, it felt so weird to me. Oh yeah, I was like, like what's Superman doing in this movie? <laughs> um, yeah, because like when you see him in Somewhere in Time, for instance. Uh, he plays a totally different character and he's not even, you know, he's not like standing around as, oh, I'm Superman. So, 
Right. Yeah, that came out two years later. You're mm-hmm. right. So, I mean, that just was something unique. Uh, when, you know, when Christopher Reeve portrayed Clark Kent, you know, as his alter ego, um, I found it uh, interesting that he based his performance for uh, Clark Kent upon Cary Grant's character in Bringing Up Baby. Really? Yeah. I I th- never knew that before, and I was like, yeah, I could see that. I could totally see that. Well, yeah, I mean, actors are known for getting their inspiration from all sorts of sources, but, uh, yeah, I just, I think that he... He just nails that characterization, that switch, that that ability to flip the switch between Superman and Clark Kent. Mm-hmm. You know, just at a, like a second's notice. Yeah. It's one of my favorite parts about him. Yeah, he was, you know, he was really brilliant for the role that he was given. And I found it good that even before being cast as Superman... He knew how to fly gliders as a hobby, and his experience as a pilot even made it better for him to know how Superman's flying would feel more <laughs> realistic. Oh, yeah, he was an old pro yeah. then. So I found that. That's great. Yeah. Um, so what do you think about Margaret Kidder being portrayed as Lois Lane? Uh, you know, I think Margot Kidder is is decent as Lois Lane. I, there have been lots of versions of Lois Lane over the years, um, but I don't think anybody has really nailed um, the kind of like ambitious reporter willing to put herself in danger mm-hmm. uh, as well as Margot Kidder did. And that was a hallmark of Lois Lane, the comic book character. Um, but yeah, I I think that she I think that she's wonderful as Lois Lane in uh, in in the first several Superman movies. You know the the Superman movies, like anything with a bunch of sequels, it, it kind of goes downhill over oh, time. Yeah. But those first two Superman movies are are just spectacular, and I think that I think that the cast. I think that everybody in the cast just really nails the parts. Oh, yeah. But I, I like Margot Kidder a lot as Lois Lane. Yeah, she, you know, she embodies the role really well because she was a go get em reporter. Um, she wasn't really concerned about her looks. She was more concerned about the story. And you get that even from the comics, that she's not really concerned about her, her looks. She's more concerned about... All right, where's the next story coming from? How am I going to get paid? Well, yeah, she's focused on she's focused like you said on on telling that next story, on on getting to the truth of things, um, you know, on 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 revealing secrets that need to be told, uh and it doesn't matter to her whether or not she's got to get her hands a little dirty or or um whether it's a dangerous situation Lois Lane has to get that story and the character they really nailed that in the in the character in this version of the character Mm -hmm. yeah I thought so too I've I've always found like when I watched it I had rented it from the library and 
the uh, version that I watched was the extended cut. And so it mm-hmm. had, you know, it had some extended scenes of her and Superman flying across the city and uh, everything. And then the, uh, the semi song that she was singing, even though she was just wording, wording it, she <laughs> right. was supposed to actually sing it. Can you read my mind? Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, probably my least favorite part of the movie, but you know, <laughs> it it furthered the story in a way of their relationship. Yeah. So that was that right. was good. It it's just a, it's just pretty cheesy, but like yeah, you're right. It does kind of show them embracing that connection between the two characters. Oh yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, the reason why we're here is to talk about the score. And I mean, John Williams just blew it away with his themes and his sweeping melodies and even the love theme that was chosen for uh, Lois and Superman. Mm, Yes. Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the biggest reasons that I love Superman, the movie so much is because of the music. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have, I have told, I've said this before. I've said it on my show. I've, I've told other people, but all I have to do is hear, you know, the opening bars of that main theme mm-hmm. before I start to get kind of emotional. <laughs> <laughs> it's almost a uh, because, feeling. Yeah, because like it means so much to me, uh, and you know, like I can, like I, I started um, last week. You know, we we had pl- originally planned to to have this conversation last mm-hmm. week. And so I listened to the soundtrack at work. Um, and as I'm listening to the soundtrack, I was replaying the movie <laughs> in my mind, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just like note for note. And I think that um, other than maybe like Star Wars or uh, the Indiana Jones movies, uh, you know, no coincidence by the same composer. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, there's no other movie that is so iconically tied to its score as this one. And I, I love it from start to finish, especially that main theme. Yeah. It's just, it's like in the extended cut, you get like the little intro of the fifties television and the black and white movie type. Oh, right. And then, then it builds and you hear that. Bum, 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 bum. Oh, that's it, Randy. That's where I start to get the goosebumps <laughs> right there. So, you know, John Williams made that, that theme so simple and yet so effective. He did that, I mean, between his time, between 1975 and 1984, he was at the top of his game of being able yeah. to build these characters, to build these scores, and to show that these characters had each a theme that would uh, transition and carry you through the story. Right. I mean, and yeah, like every, every movie, almost every movie that he scored during that time is an iconic part of somebody's childhood. Uh, Like starting with the Jaws theme, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, who 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 doesn't hear that like deep deep cello 
sound and immediately think that there's a shark nearby. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. And, uh, you know, and it's not just the, it's not just the main theme, you know, it's just like whenever I, I think of Lex Luthor or his henchmen in my head, I'm going boom, 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 It's the, it's the, it's the Otis theme. Yep. And yeah, it's like, it's so ingrained in my memory um and yeah john williams like you said i don't think there's anybody better for for this sort of thing yeah and i mean originally richard donner was going to get jerry goldsmith to do the score oh my god i can't imagine i know and he had agreed to do it but because of scheduling conflicts john williams was eagerly replacing goldsmith and so thank god (laughs) so Goldsmith, however, he was going to do music for Supergirl. Sure. So, uh, you know, it changed. I mean, he was still able to write a score for a super. <laughs> so, oh, that's all right. Yeah. I'm glad he I, I'm glad he got involved, but I'm glad that this is my Superman music. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, when you think of like different scenes in the movie and like even looking at the planet Krypton, um, do you did you envision it as it was in the movie from the comics, or was there a good transition there, or do you think there was a big difference? Um, you know, in the in the movie, Krypton is a lot different than it was in the comics um, at the time because when the idea of Krypton was introduced back in the uh, late thirties, early forties, it was sort of this like, um, pulp sci-fi, you know, like Buck Rogers style, you know, guys in capes flying little rockets with ray guns. Like Krypton was, was, uh, 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 like big mega cities, super science, weird outfits. Um, and so the idea of, this Krypton, the kind of cold and clinical Krypton, um, you know, still obviously very advanced scientifically, but this was kind of the first time they introduced the idea of Krypton as this truly alien kind of cold place. And that idea did sort of work its way into the comics eventually Mm -hmm. um, when they, you know, they rebooted things in the 80s. And you had a, a version of Krypton much more similar to this than the classic, um, the classic version. But I still think it works. Like I, I, you 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 see all those scenes. You know, you you've got that, um, you've got that trial scene at the beginning. Oh, yes. And you know, you don't even realize what they're setting up in at the time. Uh, they're setting up Superman two already. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and everybody's in these glowing robes, <laughs> you know, with these symbols on their shirts. Yeah. Um, it's just, you know, you know that there's a story there. You know that there is some sort of uh, interesting cultural reason for all of that, but they don't really get into it. You, they just kind of let you um, come to your own conclusions, which I think is kind of neat. Oh, yeah. I mean, it really shows the depth of thought maybe that they even went into uh, bringing out the world of Krypton. And you look at, you look at the costuming 
that to obtain that glowing effect, they actually had the wardrobe department spend weeks sewing these tiny glass balls onto each of the actor's apparel. And so if the material was accidentally touched, the oils on the actor's hands would interfere with that lighting effect. And so oh, man. Uh, they had to make sure that they weren't touching those uh, tiny glass <laughs> balls as like a like a surgeon that had just scrubbed in for surgery. Yeah. Keep your hands yeah, off. They were they were in a clean room. So Oh man. But even the music of Krypton and even as uh Jor-El had brought to their their attention about the destruction of Krypton. The, yes. the doom that really John Williams brings out in that theme is essential to the story. Right. Yeah, you, like so the there there's the two tracks kind of side by side on the soundtrack. Uh there's the Planet Krypton and then Destruction of Krypton. And plant the Planet Krypton is that kind of like sweeping orchestral uh you know s- sound that plays as they swoop across like the barren landscape of Krypton and kind of introduce you to what the world looks like. Mm-hmm. Um and it's just this very majestic you know even though it's this cold alien place the music lets you know that it's this this majestic um culture Im- impressive culture right um and yeah i love i love the krypton music yeah and so even you know even as you know we see that beginning opening and then you see the destruction of krypton and uh superman gets sent off into space you you get that feeling even through the music as you have the horns going back and forth like he's hurtling through space and learning all this knowledge and it's just you know it was really astounding that you know John Williams was able to get these pieces of music to fit together so well yeah it's very effective you know the the music kind of does its own form of storytelling and uh, it's very effective in, in these scenes, Um, you know, where, where baby Kal-El is, is flying through space and learning at an advanced speed and that, and the music kind of like speeds up and it gets sort of like a little bit more, um, I mean, it's just kind of, a little bit more scrambly and, and um, chaotic chaotic. Right. Exactly. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And as, as all of this input is, is flooding into this baby and then you see him kind of slowly, well, start not slowly, but you see him growing a little bit. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just the, the kind of the way that they imply the amount of time that he's traveling and, and the, and the growth and the development that he's going through. It's very effective. Oh Yeah. And, you know, when we see different parts of the movie and then it can call back to even uh, the Fortress of Solitude. And I have the expanded edition for the soundtrack. And so the scene where it's the Fortress of Solitude, it's a nine minute cue. And it's, yeah, a, it's, long. it's a massive cue, but there's so much that Jarrell 
the hologram is telling Superman that it's important to the story and you find this is more information that we needed because of even uh, Jor-El's orders for Clark not to interfere with uh, human history or the events of what was happening. And so how do we see that change by the end of the movie? Right. And well, you know, the, the length of that, of that, um, piece, you know, when you think about, he enters the fortress of solitude as a teenager. And when he comes out, he's Christopher Reeve in costume Mm -hmm. heading to Metropolis for the first time. So again, you've got that implied passage of time. We don't know how much time has passed. Um, but just like the idea that Jorel is flooding him with this knowledge and teaching him how to use his powers and, and, and helping him form his sense of morality and right and wrong and how you're not a God, you know, you can't, you can't rule these people. You can't, um, you can't control their destiny. Like you said, you can't alter their history. Um, you know, I, I, I love these, I love those scenes. And like with any good, with any good composer, they're always calling back to those themes later in the movie to kind of reintroduce the idea. Like, um, when the bomb goes off and he wants to change time to save Lois and he has those visions of Jor-El. Don't do it. Don't do it. You can't do it. Yeah. Uh, like it, like those callbacks, it's, it, it just sticks with you. Mm-hmm. And even, you know, I mean, of course we, we found that he did, uh, went ahead and yeah, he and did it. Uh, I guess it all worked out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, the interesting thing about it is that, you know, when they filmed that scene where he actually went out of the earth, um, we find that. Uh, they had settled on like a forward projection for a lot of the scenes of like when Christopher Reeve would zoom up into the sky or something. And then uh, I read somewhere of what the actual like amount of times that he was supposed to go around the earth to change the like redo the past and I can't remember where I read it, but because um, it's not in my notes. Uh, yeah. But um, it was it was really astounding because they actually figured it out mathematically of how many times he would need to do that. <laughs> I imagine it was a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting uh, with a lot of, you know, when we look at the comics, once again... And we think about novelizations for the comic book adaptions because, as you said, with Superman or Superman 2, they didn't really have a, a lot with the story that was directly tied into the comics. Yeah, right. Um, you know, uh, they have these characters that are obviously from the comics, but they're not directly, they're not directly retelling anything specific. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so you know when you have uh, Lex Luthor's plan to to knock half of California into the sea uh, and make a billion dollars in real estate, <laughs> um, you know that's that's an original story. When you have uh, General Zod and his cronies escape the Phantom Zone and and come to Earth and and discover that they have powers, that's um, you know that's that's a that's a new thing. Uh, using existing characters like General Zod existed mm-hmm. uh, in the comics in the in the Golden Age and Silver Age uh, Superman comics, um, but uh, you know Superman had um, Superman had uh, the Superman comics had this um, bad habit. Uh, you know the idea was like he's the last one, he's the only survivor, and at a certain point. They must have gotten bored or ran out of ideas or something. And so they slowly started to introduce the idea that maybe he didn't, uh, maybe he wasn't the only survivor. Maybe he had a cousin Mm -hmm. or maybe he's got a bunch of people that live in a bottle city in his fortress. Um, and then they had, they came up with the idea of the phantom zone Mm -hmm. And in the Phantom Zone is like literally an army of of bad guys, of from Krypton that are just like conveniently plucked out whenever they need somebody really tough for Superman to fight. Yeah. So. Um, That's a plot device. But yeah, but it's, it works. Yeah, exactly. So it's just kind of funny, like the idea, that like Superman is the last son of Krypton. Well, not really. There's like two or three hundred Kryptonians <laughs> hanging around out there somewhere. Um, but. Uh, yeah, so they 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 take these original ideas, they take these uh, classic ideas, and then they put their own original spin on them. And they're doing it now, still with the modern movies. Like even even when they do an even when they redo an origin story, like for something we know mm-hmm. backwards and forwards, like Batman. Like how many times have we seen the origin of Batman? I six times. <laughs> right, but they always put their own little spin on it. Um, Doctor Strange, the Doctor Strange movie that just came out was uh, a, a great example of them taking the core of the idea and then spinning it into something original. And that's what they did here with these Superman movies. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, we we see the comparison between the... Um, we see the comparison between the comics and then the movies... And we see how, with the themes of even the music, uh, we can really get into that. And, and that's what I'd like to do now, is really get into um, playing a few cues from the movie. And um, Oh, great. Because I've got like a long opening sequence for the titles. Uh, and when we look at, you know, we've talked about the vision of the planet Krypton and the destruction of it. And with these pieces, even with the scenes in the movie, um, we've talked about the comparisons of what the comics originally were like and then how the movie had portrayed it. And uh, do you think the score really compares really well to the images that we see on the screen? Oh, yeah. You know, I think I think that, you know, it when you're watching... Superman, and you hear, say, um, 
let's the the music, the music uh, during his time as a teenager, right? Where he's like growing up in Smallville. Yeah. Um. It's it still has those familiar punches from the main theme in it. Um, but in a slightly different way, like maybe a little bit less. Um, you know, it, it, it you get a you get a sense that it's like. Oh well, this guy is Superman, but it's not quite so majestic, right? It's not—it's not the most heroic theme. It's just kind of like a nice, like a light, um, youthful theme with the familiar hint that, like, oh, this is this, this is this hero, this hero story that we're hearing. Um, you know, so I think that the music during that scene is effective because it conveys that kind of youthful time. And still kind of reminds you with those familiar beats that, hey, this is Superman. You know, he's growing into into the greatest hero that ever lived. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think I think that the music is a perfect fit. Yeah, I, I would have to agree. So the first three cues that I'd really like to play. But um, these three pieces, they they blend the music seamlessly together and I've created kind of a suite uh, using the prelude and the title march, the planet Krypton, and then the destruction of Krypton. So we'll hear that now. Thank you. 
Okay, so Joe, next I've got the one cue named the Fortress of Solitude. Now we've talked a little bit about that theme and how, you know, the Fortress of Solitude stands up as something uh, that Superman can go to at any time. Do you think it? Yeah. Do you think it stands up in the comics as a place for Superman to go to get away from everything? Oh yeah, they always, you know, comics comics are constantly getting rebooted and retooled, and the past is getting rewritten. Um, it's just what it's just what happens when you've got characters that have been around for eighty years. Um, but they always come back to the Fortress of Solitude. It's just a cool idea. And so they have that still in the comics. It's a, it's a, um, a, a, an alien place. Not, I mean, it's on earth, but you know, it's a place that's otherworldly, uh, you know, so it's an otherworldly place on this world where Superman can get away and just kind of be himself and be alone and, you know, think about things, make plans, do super science or whatever. Uh, he's got fun trophies in there. Um, he's got like memorials to his birth parents. And so, um, it's always a little bit more, uh, it's always a little bit more detailed, uh, and decorated, let's say, Mm -hmm. uh, than the movie version, which is just like, you are inside a cave of ice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, like the fortress of solid, right, right. Uh, but the fortress of solitude is a classic idea still around today. All right. So, um, so now we'll hear the Fortress of Solitude. Thank you. 
So the final piece I'd like to play is called the finale and the end march. Joe, I'd like to ask you, how does this piece make you feel? I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> um, you know, I kind of, I kind of view, um, I kind of view the, the the finale march and the opening march as kind of two halves of of the same piece. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, and so, like for me, nothing embodies Superman more than those pieces of music. Whenever I hear them. They are so closely tied to my to my idea of Superman and my memory of Superman and my love of that character um, that I just think the world of them. I, I, I really, really love them. That's good. And, you know, it it gives you a feeling of like accomplishment that the character of Superman has done his deeds, his superpowers have he's righted wrongs and. You know, he's brought justice oh, yeah. to people and uh, he he stands for truth and justice and, you know, up, up and away. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's all and it's all of these feelings, you know, it's it's the like you said, the feeling that justice has been done, that something good has happened, that wrongs have been righted. But also, you know, this feeling of hope and victory and uh, and and all of this, all of these, you know, positive um, uplifting, empowering um, ideas just kind of like swirl through my mind whenever I hear this music. Yeah. So what I'd like to do is I'd really like to thank you for being on the show tonight. Um, it's been really enjoyable to be able to talk about your favorite movie. And it's got to be probably your favorite movie of all time. Yes, sir. And even being able to talk about the score and how much it means even to both of us because we kind of grew up at the same time. So, uh, you know, we look at this movie as something iconic from our past and really can feel that the music and even the movie embodies what Superman really should be, um, unlike the modern retelling of superman oh you're so right randy (laughs) you're so right and it's been my pleasure i'm so glad you asked me to come on yeah and so i hope that sometime in the future i can have you on the show again i know you're getting uh the two-headed nerd comic podcast up and running again with matt bomb and uh yes we're at we're coming back actually we're uh launching we're, our big relaunch is is being recorded this weekend, so awesome. We'll be back on iTunes before you know it. All right. So where can people find you at this moment? Uh, so our website is uh, twoheadednerd.com. That's where you can find uh, all the things we post on our site, all of our past episodes, which you can still download. Just have to download them directly from mm-hmm. us. Um. We're on Facebook. Uh, uh, if you just search for Two Headed Nerd, you'll find us. Uh, we're on Twitter at Two Headed Nerd. Uh, me personally, my Twitter account is at Joe Patrick One One Six. So we're all over the place, man. That's fantastic. And you can find me at SoundtrackAlley.net. Um, I've actually revamped my website, so that way I've got a new logo. Um, you'll have to check it out. 
It's pretty amazing. Congrats. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and it's a big thank you and shout out to the Podcast Arcade Network. Um, I have now been officially brought in to that network. So Hey, that's great news. Yeah, yeah. So I'm really excited about it and it means a lot a lot of exciting times ahead and uh I've already had like multiple uh messages from people that wanna be on my show now. So it's kind of fun. That's great. Yeah, so that's great. <laughs> so that's it for today. Uh you can find my show on uh soundtrackalley.podbean.com or you can follow it on iTunes and any uh, review or rating that you give my show helps me get noticed uh, more and it's always a pleasure so that's all for today and so ending this episode I'll play the finale the and the end march so happy listening
you for listening to Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. I hope you take some time to review my podcast on iTunes and also listen to it on Podbean. And if you leave a review or rating on there, it'll help us get noticed on iTunes. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com. Thank you.